0: Lord. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look, send to Keter and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, Riley. Their lack of rest is destroying them. There were the words of a doctor, Dr. Frank Cradosco, in the New York Daily News a couple years ago about what he called an epidemic. He was doing two to 300 surgeries every year on the shoulders and elbows of teenage baseball and softball players. What was causing this epidemic, he said, of reconstructive joint surgeries was one factor. These kids were doing the same sport year-round and never, ever taking rest. When we don't rest, when we can't find Sabbath, when we can't get off our treadmill, it destroys us. We're destroyed from the micro-trauma of overuse. Always practicing, always playing, always working, always laboring, always weary. Friends, are you weary How many of you are tired, and not just with a physical tired, but with an emotional tiredness? An emotional tiredness deep within, a longing for for sleep, for rest, to, to get off the treadmill. Jesus performed a miracle, what John calls a sign, that we're going to look at today. And he performed it on the Sabbath, on the day of rest, to show us something about himself, and how He speaks into our need to perform, our need to put out something here that every wearied soul needs to hear. I'm going to read from the fifth chapter of John's Gospel. It's a long passage. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. This is the Gospel of Christ. Follow along as I read. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five color covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And When Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And so, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What do we see here? This is a pool. We know where the pool is. It's in the northeast quadrant of the old city of Jerusalem. It's an archaeological site today. It's a big hole that goes down below a church. And, uh, and around this was originally five colonnades. There were four just above the level of the water, and then there was one up on the cliff on the hill above it. And this man, he's been here 38 years, can't walk. He's hoping that what will happen is that he'll be the first into the water when the water stirs, because the legend was that the Holy Spirit would stir and move the water, and whoever was the first person in was the one who would get the miracle. And so he's sitting here trying to get his miracle, but he doesn't have the ability to do it, and he's frustrated. What we're going to look at are three different perspectives. We're going to look at the perspective of the man who was healed. We're going to look at the perspective of the Jewish uh, religious leaders. And when it says the Jews, understand everybody was a Jew here. John was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. The Jews is shorthand for the pharisaical leaders, the the the, the religious, the, the pastors. And then we're going to look at a third way that's different from the world's and different from religion's a way of Jesus. First, we're going to look at the world's way of rescue. It's something uh, that we see in this man. He's, he's He's suffering so terribly, and notice that this man is absolutely miserable. He's miserable physically. He's paralyzed. It's been going on for 38 years. He's lying on a mat. We don't know if people bring him to the pool every day and then take him home, or if perhaps more likely on account of his disability, he is homeless, and he lives with his mat at that location. We don't know, but he wants to be the first one to get in the pool because physically he is miserable and he's also spiritually miserable our english translations clean things up a little bit understand this is not a nice man he is crotchety he is difficult there's stuff going on inside of him did you notice as soon as he healed is he healed he gets up carries his mat and 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 doesn't even notice it's jesus who healed him doesn't even pay attention. He's just focused on himself, which understandable after 38 years. But then he doesn't know when he's questioned, like who told you that you can walk and carry your mat on the Sabbath? Obviously, because we want to, you know, fetch the thumb, thumb screws and the stretch. You know, we want to, we want to hurt this person because he's violating our laws by by saying that you can do something on the Sabbath that we think is a sin to do on the Sabbath. So they're very keen to find out who it was who told him. Not who healed him, but who could tell him. They want to know who told this man he could carry his mat. And uh, this guy says, I don't know. Could have ended right there. Then later on at the temple, Jesus is like, oh, I'm the one who did that. What's he do? First thing he does, finds the religious leaders and rats on Jesus. Who, after all, had told him, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen. D.A. Carson says it this way. John's deft portrait of the invalid throughout this chapter paints him in dour hues. He tries to avoid difficulties with the authorities by blaming the one who healed him in verse 11. He's so dull that he's not even discovered his benefactor's name in verse 13. Once he finds out, he reports Jesus to the authorities in verse 15. In this light, his words read less as an apt and subtle response to a question of Jesus than as the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he is answering a stupid question. He's suffering physically, but there's spiritual stuff going on here too, and he is suffering spiritually. It's a very tragic picture. He has no joy in the midst of his suffering. This is not an example of a faith healing. There are times where Jesus encounters somebody, and they believe him, and he heals them, and says, your faith has made you well. And then there's this guy who is not a believer. He does not love Jesus. He throws Jesus under the bus. Uh, He's on a very dangerous path, a path that could lead to something far worse than lying on a mat for 38 years. Could you imagine something worse than that? We're talking about eternal destruction, and Jesus uh, is, is, is healing him because he has compassion on the man because of his physical ailment, but also because of his spiritual condition. His spiritual misery, it's what happens when when we hope in the wrong thing, and that wrong thing fails us. Notice this man thinks he needs something in life. He knows what he he needs. He needs, in order to be happy, he needs to be able-bodied. That's what he's thinking. This man, he's emotionally and spiritually miserable because the one thing he thinks he has to have, well, at least you have your health he doesn't have it it's been taken from him and what's interesting there's there's suggestions in the actual wording here that in in particularly Jesus words to him uh, the suggestion here is pretty strong that this guy is the guy at the pool who is suffering because it's his own fault you know Jesus goes out of his way to say that suffering is not always because you did something bad that's not you know I'm thinking of the the man born blind, where the, the people ask, is he was he was he born blind because of his own sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus is like, No, he was born blind so that the works of God could be set forth and Jesus heals him. So, so that kind of theology of suffering that says it's your own fault is not is something Jesus uh, disputes elsewhere. But in this instance, this is the exception to that. Because in this instance, Jesus says, Don't go back to the sin, because something worse is gonna happen which in the Greek implies that this man, you think of it like a a guy who, who breaks into somebody's house to steal their belongings and it goes horribly badly and he ends up paralyzed from the neck down. That's this guy. We don't know the specifics. But he thinks he has to have his health. Greg, that's harsh. He's been disabled 38 years. He has been. And that's tragic. That's trauma. Physical health is a good thing. But an idol is always a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. He's willing to throw Jesus under the bus. When you're that eager for something, it's an idol. It's something that you value uh, more than God Himself. Uh, And that could be anything that can be power, that can be approval. I can't be happy unless other people like me. That could be comfort, it could be control. I'm only happy if I'm in charge. It could be helping other people. That's a good thing, but I only have value if I'm able to help other people. Boy, that's going to be, a, that's gonna be a, a prison for you. It could be dependence or independence. It could be your work or your career. People build their identity on their career all the time. But if you're willing to sin in order to advance your career, it is an idol. It is, it is, it is something that God is himself against. Because it's a gift he gave you to serve him and to serve others. Not an idol to build your identity on as if it's what makes you significant. Achievement, material prosperity, getting the house, getting the cars, getting the wife, getting the kids, getting the pool, getting the beach house, getting the mountain house, getting the vacation house. If that's what you're living for, that's going to be empty. Those are gifts of God that he has given you, not identities to build yourself on. People build their identity on race, on culture, on being in the inner ring, on our families, on our relationships, on suffering. You know, this notion that I can't be a valid human being unless I'm in a romantic coupled relationship. How powerful is that in our culture? we reinforce it again and again and again, and yet it's empty. Anything can become an idol. And for this man, his own health, getting healed. He's been working at it. You can almost feel the treadmill he's been on. 38 years going back to the pool again. Maybe today will be the day. Maybe today will be the day I get in the water and get my healing. Can you imagine the sense of failure every single day? Because when you have to have something and it is denied you, it will crush you. It will not forgive you when you fail yet again. And you can almost feel the emotional exhaustion, the weariness, the despair. And notice this man is very willing to let Jesus help him get in the pool first uh, he doesn't come out and directly ask it but he's hinting really strongly saying all right Jesus the thing I have to have to be happy is in that pool you could help me get in the pool I have no one to help me get in the pool Jesus you know I do the same things. the thing he thinks he has to have is in the pool and he's wanting to use Jesus to get that that's not all that different for me how often do i find myself maybe you find yourself praying oh jesus i really 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 have to have this one thing please help me get it then i'll be happy yeah maybe you've never done that please 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 jesus give me a successful career then i'll be happy and worship you Please, Jesus, give me a relationship and then I'll be happy and I'll serve you. Please give me that special someone. And I, you, you should have people. You should have lots of special someones in your life. But, but but, we can make these things into idols and use God as a means toward an end of the thing that is our real God. Uh, we all do it. I mean, this poor man, he's determined to get Jesus to help him get in the water first. Uh, he's dropping the hint so strongly. Jesus Help me in the water. And Jesus says, No, I'm not going to help you into the water. I am the water. And then Jesus heals this unworthy, angry, totally idolatrous, grumpy, bossy curmudgeon who thinks he knows what he really needs. And notice Jesus' warning. Jesus says, Stop sinning, or worse, will befall you. Jesus is concerned. For the man you say oh got it so stop sinning that's the message that's the take-home not exactly what Jesus is saying is he's saying I'm the water return to me don't return to the sinful life that got you in this place of misery come to me let me be the one that delights you let me be the one that will make you happy You've already seen where that other life led. You're not going to get better results the second time around. I've just shown you that I am the real water of life. I have just shown you that I am God in the flesh. I have just shown you that I have the power to restore and to heal, that I have life and I am life. Why do you keep seeking life elsewhere? And it's not that this man is desiring too much of life. It's that he's desiring too little. Think of Jeremiah 2, what we just read. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the Lord says, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah 17, those who turn away from you will will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Isaiah 55, we've looked at several times in the last month or so. God says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread? Why labor on what doesn't satisfy? Listen, the Lord says, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair, give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found, he writes. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to Yahweh and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. There's that passage In the Weight of Glory, in which C.S. Lewis says this, It would seem that our Lord, Jesus, finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered to us, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, Because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's the plea of Jesus with this man. And it's the plea of Jesus Christ with you. Do not be pleased with the things of this life. Jesus is the one. He's saying, I am the water. I am the healing. I am the life. The world's way of self-rescue we see and idolatry. We also see religion's way of self-rescue. That's something we see in these religious leaders. Notice their fixation on rule keeping, and not even biblical rule keeping. The Bible doesn't say you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. It says honor the Sabbath. That's a little broader, and yet their fixation, a miraculous healing, has just liberated a man from 30 years of abject misery, and they've got their pants all bent out of shape because it happened on the Sabbath. I mean, you can almost imagine God does some miraculous conversion of somebody that would never in a billion years become a Christian, and then people get all bent out of shape over the terminology they use. It's it's these things happen. Blind guides. Did you notice this? The fixation on rule-keeping, extra-biblical rule-keeping. Either God was among them, because God can do this kind of miracle, or a prophet of God is being authenticated by divine miracles, and they find this man carrying his mat, and they're all up and over arms over the fact that it happened on the Sabbath. The works of God are not what is significant here. They're trying to stamp out rule-breaking. And then when they find out it was Jesus who performed the healing, Then they want his head on a platter. Literally, they want him dead, and they begin conspiring to take him out. They begin trying to destroy him. It's the heart of legalism, a fixation on external obedience to man-made rules that build a fence around the law so that we can't get too close to breaking it, even though they only loosely track the actual biblical mandates, and that's coupled with an inbuilt drive to use power and coercion to force everyone else into conformity. Does it sound familiar to any of you? Did some of you grow up in this? And it's also like the world's way of self-rescue, like idolatry, religion is also a form of self-rescue. You see, there's a psychology to legalism, a psychology to moralism. There's a psychology behind human religion. Uh, Human religion in almost all of its forms is ultimately a human effort to validate oneself through what we do, Religion presents itself as something radically opposed to idolatry. There's idolatry, and then there is religion, but but at its heart, they're the same psychology. It says, my life will be significant and have meaning if I fill in the blank, obey the rules, believe the right things, do the right rituals. If I say the right stuff, if I follow these correctly and use the right stuff and obey the regulations and make everybody else do the same, then I'm going to be one of the good people then my life will have value over against the bad people. Does it sound familiar? It's the same thing as the grumpy, irritable, unbelieving man who got healed. It's the same psychology. It's the same attempt to rescue myself. It just has, you know, a bow tie on it. And it makes you incredibly narrow, this treadmill of constantly having to measure up, constantly having to be better than other people. If that's your measure, if that's what you have to be, what are you gonna do? One. I am going to minimize my own sin in the appearance of others. I'm not, I'm, there are going to be things in front of me. I'm not going to think my bitterness is a sin. I'm not going to think my critical spirit is a sin. I'm not going to think my gossip is a sin. These are the sins of church folks. Then and now. But I'm going to minimize those and make those okay. And I'm going to pick the sins that I don't struggle with and make those to be the worst sins in the world. Those are the evil, wicked, shameful, awful people. Shame on them. Shame on them. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like sinful men. I tithe, I pray, I do all the right stuff. And then the other guy's right there at the wall next to him, beating his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinful man. And Jesus says, he is the one who goes home. justified, because your attempt at self-rescue is just another form of self-righteous idolatry. And it doesn't make you generous toward other people. They're not generous toward this 30 guy who's been suffering for 38 years. My old roommate Dave Philson, back from seminary days. Before seminary, he worked at No Charlie's in uh, in Nashville. Uh, if you don't know O. Charlie's, think Applebee's with more ferns. Um, and uh, and I remember him telling me um, there was one shift that nobody wanted to work. Nobody wanted to work. One particular shift at the restaurant, busing tables and serving people. What shift do you think nobody wanted to work? It's it's a liturgical response. <laughs> Sunday lunch in the non smoking section. Everybody wanted to work the bar. Because the people who drink, the people who smoke, they know what hardship is like they know they need mercy and they're going to give you a good tip but the church crowd they're going to be difficult they're going to complain they're going to have 8 million demands and they're going to stiff you on the tip it says it's it's really a damning indictment on religion where the gospel is absent it makes us narrow it makes us worse not better it makes us narrow it makes us cheap and it makes us restless constantly having to try harder, constantly having to do more, constantly on this treadmill, making yourself one of the good people, never able to get off, exhausting, wearying, and Jesus wants better for you. And so here is warning in this passage. It's implied in John's positioning of the miracle with the Pharisees' response to it. Here is a man who's completely incapacitated, and Jesus heals him. And the religious leaders only see the rules been broken. And what John is saying implicitly is that they are the ones who are truly incapacitated. They are the ones who are truly paralyzed. They are indeed, in verse 3, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And they are the ones who, if you come to Jesus, he too can heal. Um, Jesus elsewhere, Luke's Gospel, tells us a parable of two sons, one of the sons demands his inheritance early, basically killing his father in his heart. And then he, the younger brother, he runs off, he spins it, he throws it all, like about prostitutes and wild living and gambling and eBay and just you name it. He is throwing money around left and right. Then he ends up completely broke because there's a famine. And he's in a pigsty wishing he could eat the pig's feed. And, and finally he says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to beg, please, please, please take me back. And of course the father throws his arms around him you know, runs, you know, lifts up his undies to run fast because they wore dresses, and, and, and puts a ring on his finger and a cloak on his back and demands the, the fatted calf be slain and starts a huge party and the older brother hears it from way off and he comes back and he's like asking the servant, dude, what what's going on? This is like this is like Mardi Gras here. Who what's this about? And he's like, Well, um your your younger brother, the one that wanted your dad dead, um, came back with sores all over him and uh your your dad just took him back in it's, it's a big celebration. Why, the older brother refuses to go into the party, really dishonoring his father, shaming his father, just as bad as what the other son did. Why can he not go into the kingdom? Why can he not enter into the celebration of salvation? He says, because all these years I slaved for you. There are two ways to be damned, folks. You can be damned because of your sins. You could be damned because of your self-righteousness. You've got to lay both of them at the feet of the cross. Not the world's way of idolatrous self-salvation. Not religion's way of religious self-salvation. We see here a third way. Jesus is a third way. Jesus as a real rescuer. You see, there was a, a Jewish argument in the first century about whether or not Yahweh, God, is a Sabbath breaker. Um... You know, first century Palestinian Judaism was the most, particularly among pharisaical circles, was the most legalistic of all forms of Jewish expression. And they placed the highest uh, priority on obedience to the Sabbath commandment. They had umpteen billion rules surrounding it. and, uh, And the question was, is God sinning by working on the Sabbath? Because the Lord gives wine to gladden the hearts of men. The Lord feeds all the cattle. God is the one who makes every leaf turn color. He, he, Jesus said that a, a a bird can't fall to the ground without the will of your Father in heaven. And so the question is, God then is constantly working, night and day. Is God a Sabbath breaker? And and of course, these kind of pharisaical schools of Judaism did all their work, and they, they figured out a workaround because you can't have a sinful God. And they ended up coming up with the conclusion that it is, it is not a sin to work on the Sabbath if you're working in your own home. And the world is God's house, therefore God doesn't leave home to work on the Sabbath. Also, they pointed out, this is actually in the literature, that it is only a sin to lift something above your own shoulders, and God is infinite, therefore none of the things He does is over His shoulders. And so then there's this stuff uh, about about Jesus, what does Jesus say? Can you imagine the the, the scandal uh, when they asked Jesus, "Why did you tell him he could he could do this on the Sabbath? Why did you heal on the Sabbath?" He says, "Our Father is always working. My Father is always at work to this very day." They'd be like, "Okay," and then Jesus does it. He goes off the ledge. He says, "And I too." am working. What's Jesus claiming? He is just citing a rabbinic argument as to why God is allowed to work on the Sabbath and citing it in reference to himself. They know exactly what Jesus is claiming right after that verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is identifying as God here, the Logos, the Word of God, speaking His powerful Word, recreating this man who had been so damaged, His powerful Word, speaking healing and salvation because He is the Word of God. He is God incarnate. He is the Logos. And notice what kind of God Jesus is presenting for us here. Jesus is presenting us the kind of God who blesses the ungrateful He's presenting us the kind of God who blesses the undeserving. One commentator says it's possible that John is also telling us that the reason Jesus chose this invalid out of all the others who were waiting for the waters to be stirred was precisely because his illness and his alone was tied to a specific sin. Jesus singles out the biggest sinner at the pool and chooses him for healing to drive home the point that salvation is not a consequence of how deserving you are. Salvation is a consequence of the grace of God toward the ungrateful and the unworthy toward people like us. And Jesus, by doing this on the Sabbath, is communicating, I am your Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was made for us. It's designed to restore us, to refresh us. And Jesus is saying, that's who I am. I am the one who restores. I am the one who refreshes. I am an end to your striving. I am an end to your labor. I am the one who gets you off your dreaded treadmill. In me, you don't have to measure up any longer. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to accomplish great things. You no longer need to prove yourself. You don't have to be a good dad or a good mom in order to be a valid person loved by me. You don't have to be a successful person in your career or a hard worker. You no longer have to have all the right answers and be adored by everyone. Your, 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 your child birthday parties don't have to be Instagram worthy. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to be worthy. You don't have to be good enough. You only have to be loved. You have to have me. I am the one who blesses the unworthy. I am the one who restores the wicked. I am the one who loves to shower my Sabbath rest on those who deserve nothing but judgment because that is the kind of God I am. A God of grace. A God who saves sinners. A God of the unworthy. A Sabbath rest. Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. There's an old Jewish legend. Modern versions of it are a little more varied, but once upon a time, there was a, a four-year-old boy named Mordecai, and Mordecai was ornery. He was difficult, and he was disobedient. He was a bad kid, and he hated reading his Hebrew Bible. His mom and his dad would beg him. They'd, they'd try to force him to. They'd punish him no matter what. The kid just had no interest in God, had no interest in anything other than getting off the play by himself. And so the, the parents, they were exhausted. They sent him to a psychiatrist. That didn't help. Counselors, that didn't help. You know, school, you know, resource officers. Everything was futile. Nothing was going to change this boy's heart. And so finally, in desperation, they sought out a wise old rabbi. Uh, it was a warm, wise, spiritual guide, and they explained their plight. They poured out their frustration. They poured out their despair. The rabbi did not say a word. He walked, walked over to the child. He picked up Mordecai. He held him in his arms, squeezed him tight toward his chest. He held him there. Then he set Mordecai down on the ground. And from that point on, Mordecai was interested in the things of God. Because what that rabbi had done is he had held him close to his chest that he might hear the beating heart of grace and of love and the compassion of God. Friends, you are that little boy, Mordecai. And that rabbi's name is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who who scoops you up and holds you close to his chest so that you might hear the beating heart of the eternal God, the heart that beats in love and compassion and delight for you. And that that love and compassion of God might shape you, that you might drink deeply of Jesus, the living water's, that you might rest in his grace, no longer driven, that you might rest from your need to accomplish great things, your need to be good enough that the Lord would scoop up wounded sinners like us, hold us close to his chest, that we might receive his love and walk in his rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You are our Sabbath rest. You are the one in whom we no longer need to perform. You are the one who has clothed us with your righteousness. You are the one who went to the cross for us. And so we consecrate the elements on this table to you, this bread and this cup that you might minister, the gospel to us as your people, that we might in turn love others in your behalf. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.